All right, we're in our third week here of a series called Proud to be an American. Proud to be an American Christian. We're continuing a, a several-month theme of, hey, let's just, just be very honest and talk about what's on everybody's minds in this crazy world and crazy year. And right now, I mean, we would be foolish to be tone-deaf to the reality that uh, politics and, and how to think about that in the context of being a Christian in our world and in our country in an upcoming election, how do we, what do we do with all that? So this series is meant to get us into God's Word, get us into the, the facts of our history books, and just wrestle with some of these incredible things that our, our founders left us. They did some things incredibly right that left a, a legacy that I would say is a godly heritage that's been given to us, bestowed to us as, as an inheritance like no other country has really had. And we have, I believe, the, the duty, the obligation to defend that, to protect that, to promote that. And we're not in any way just, you know, blindly with rosy-colored glasses saying America's perfect, has no problems, has no sins, past, present, or future. Not. That's not what we're saying at all. We're saying that the founders, if we get into their hearts, their minds, what they actually said and the intentions of the way that they framed our government has some really, really beautiful, powerful things that as Christians, we should be able to say, amen, let's do that. And in some ways, it's amen, let's go back to that. Or amen, let's live up to that. So very, very important, healthy things to, to wrestle with because the reality is we're all citizens. We're dual citizens in the world. But the, the book of Philippians makes clear that our primary citizenship is in heaven. So we're not saying it's not. So Philippians 3, 4 to 21, and in a little caption of it is, our citizenship is in heaven. And that's what we await, the revealing of the Lord Jesus to, to finally, perfectly inaugurate and advance his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven throughout the earth so that every tongue, tribe, and nation worships Jesus before the throne. That is our ultimate hope. But we also see throughout God's word is that God has placed us in specific locations, places, countries, nations, cities. And we're to be citizens of heaven while being citizens of earth. And sometimes that gets a little confusing. What does that look like? And so that's exactly why we're going back into the history books. Because I firmly believe, and the more I study it, man, the more I get excited and convinced that the founders of our country struck that balance incredibly well. They weren't trying to make a Christian theocracy where everyone was forced to be Christians. Neither in any way, shape, or form are they a bunch of atheists and deists that don't care. That is absolutely historical revisionism if you see that. You cannot read the founders in their own words and come away with that. So I believe they struck a very fine line. Many of them, if not most of them, very strong, committed Christians. And so they struck this line of what does it look like to be ultimately citizens of heaven, but know that, but while we're on earth, we're citizens of earth. We've got to set up a government. So what does that look like? 
to be fair and just and etc etc so that's what we're going after so if you've missed it the first two i would highly recommend going online weareelevation.com because they build on each other not coincidentally the founders i believe had a very clear vision for building a society of liberty and it has steps it has foundational pieces that matter a lot. Today we're going to look at maybe everybody's favorite in America. Individual rights. Everybody's favorite. I mean, this, this, this is America, right? Human rights, civil rights, liberties. Don't tread on me. <laughs> America is known for being the birthplace of certain unalienable rights, as it says in the Declaration of Independence, endowed by our Creator, such as life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, such as a government that's set up and derives its just powers from the what? Consent of the people. That's a right. Or as it was stated in the Constitution, it's we the people. We the people are creating this government, which declares such rights as freedom of worship, freedom of religion, not freedom from religion, which is incredibly important. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, the right to peacefully assemble, the right to protest, the right to petition the government, all these rights that we're, we're, we're so much frogs in the pot in a good way, we, we just take these absolutely as inherent. I have all these rights. And everybody in America talks like this. We know this. We love this. And we should. But man, did that come at a cost. We are a nation built on individual rights and freedoms. And in fact, our nation had an absolutely profound effect on the world giving birth to this notion of human rights and civil rights. I mean, this, this is America. However, the American experiment that produced individual rights that really dramatically transformed the face of the world began with radical notions of individual rights and liberty that were diametrically opposed to the normal government structures of the time. And so I want to take us back to that a bit today to refresh, to remind, to appreciate where this universal passion for human rights came from. And in a way, it, it helps us go back there and anchors us back once again in, in what was intended, and that will help us recapture and move forward as we desire to grow that tree of liberty that the founders envisioned. So let's go back to some of my favorite people. The Mayflower Compact, 1620. Before they even got off the boat, they wrote 
in some ways a little mini constitution. In fact, what happened was their ship blew off course. So they, re- they thought, they recognized that, hey, we're no longer in Virginia. So they had a contract with the Virginia company to fund it and et cetera, et cetera. They blew off course. And so part of it was, whoa, we're not in Virginia anymore. We're not under that obligation. Destiny took us off course. Oops. So what do we do? Well, we've got to come up with a document to govern ourselves. It's now famously called the Mayflower Compact before they even got off the boat. What is now Plymouth, Massachusetts. They wrote this text. In the name of God, amen. Having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, there's some vision, and honor of king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents, these people present, solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic. That's civil government. For our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid, meaning the goals, the vision, to advancement of the Christian faith, etc. By virtue hereto, enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitution, and offices from time to time, as shall be thought by most, meet and convenient for the general good of the colony. I know, I'm sorry for some, that's like really boring. You just got thrown back into high school history class. But that is a revolutionary document. A civil body politic. This, this group of, there's like 100 passengers, 25 crew members, 44 of them are pilgrims. This is a, this is a very mixed group, but the, the pilgrims, the Puritans, the Christians stood up and they said, hey, before we get off the boat, we have to have a document that we agree upon, that we vote upon, that says this is how we're going to live together. And again, this is, this is Christians mixed with merchants and adventurers and entrepreneurs and tradesmen. They're not, they're not all the Puritans. So this is right away. This is a picture of America. This is a pluralistic America. How do we live together? The Christians stood up, said, let's do this. They wrote, and a civil body politic was created. The voice, and this is what's so revolutionary at the time, we've got we've to feel it. The voice of the people creating a government document that speaks of things about laws and from time to time offices, meaning we're going to vote on laws, we're going to vote on offices, as is, shall be thought the, the most convenient for the general good of the colony. So, the voice of the people creating a a public government document that is then ratified by a majority vote, this has not been done. This is radical. This is the beginning of the American experiment. This is the seeds of democracy, of representative government. This stands in glaring contrast And this is part of what helps see how radical they are, how bold they are, how costly it was for them to fight for the individual rights and freedoms that we swim in today. At the time, the King of England had declared 
the divine right of the king. He creates the government. He, cre- he is the head of the church, so the divine right of the king was a concept that in 1531, King Henry of England ushered in. He named himself, so he's already the king, the monarch, as if that's not enough power. He got a little thirsty for more. So he came up with the concept and named himself the supreme head of the church of England, which reminding me of what's that children's book about that fat fish that just keeps eating more and my mom read it to me a thousand times sorry (laughs) he's already the king of England one of the most powerful nations in the world and he says you know what the church they've got a lot of power I think I'll also be the head of the church and so the supreme head of the church of England ushered in this theory of the divine right of kings. So he seized all the assets from the Catholic Church, broke away from Rome, essentially created the Church of England as its own separate church from Rome. But he declared himself as the head. It's a state-run church, so it is, it is a state-sponsored, it is the church. It's the approved church by the government, That's part of what the founders were getting away from in the First Amendment as well. A state-run church with the king also the head of the church. So what this permitted the king was absolute power over the subjects. It left no room for the rights of people because it now it fully enshrined, if you will, the power of the king as now having divine authority so in other words the king's not accountable to anyone why they're only accountable to god it's the divine right of the king to lead the people in every fashion both in the political sphere in the spiritual sphere and you got those two things now you've got everything back then no accountability whatsoever no rights of the people There are no unalienable rights. They don't exist. You don't have them. Only the king does, and he can govern as he sees fit. Human rights don't exist. That is the the lived reality in which the Mayflower Compact is birthed. It's an act of treason. I mean, they're, they're already running from King George or King James, which one is uh, George, I think, was the time of the pilgrims, and you know, James was the pilgrims, George was the, the uh, American Revolution. I might get that wrong. I think it's James. Anyways, the pilgrims come here in 1620 because they've already fled King George, who wants to kill them. Why? Because they just want to read the Bible and worship God. So, let's, let's, let's feel the boldness here of the pilgrims. They are way, way out of step, treasonously out of step with what was appropriate for the time in the realm of government. A civil, civil body politic that took the voice of the people creating a document and ratifying it by vote and saying, we're going to come back from time to time and vote again 
on who leads us and what the laws are, treason. But the American experiment begins to take shape. But where did the pilgrims get these ideas? So we got to push back a little further. Just a few years before, and, and, and again, let me give you a little framework. As you're hearing this, this is way more history than we normally get into. Receive your godly inheritance that cost many their very lives for what we hold today as just normal. A few years before King Henry in 1531 had declared himself, you know, Supreme Chancellor and Darth Vader and all those things, Martin Luther starts the Protestant Church Reformation in 1517. So this is very close together, and they're related in a way. I think the King Henry's like, hey, there's a little revolt. Cool, I'll just think I'll take the whole church and make it mine. And I don't think Luther had that as his idea. But Martin Luther starts the Protestant Reformation in 1517, like 14 years before King Henry does his thing. So the 95 Thesis, very famously, hammered into the door of All Saints Church, ironically, All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and the Reformation begins with Luther emphasizing what? Listen closely. What does Luther emphasize? Personal salvation of the individual before God. The individual needs to come to a repentance and faith that by faith, through grace alone, can one be saved. And then that is built upon, and, the, and Luther also emphasizes the priesthood of all believers. So you have individual salvation, which leads to, in a way, the rights of the believers. We're all a priesthood. We all have priestly power. Now that, again, is radical at the time. He specifically writes to the popes, to the nobility in 1520, in this letter to the quote, uh, what do they call it? What did he call it at the time? The Christian nobility of the German nation. What he's, in 1520. What he wants to do is dismiss the idea that the church has been pushing that the world needs to be divided into two classes. You've got the the, the, the sacred and the secular. Basically, the, the priests, the nobility, the politicians, they're all in it together. They're, they're, they've got the divine rights. And then there's the rest of us. And how that played out in many ways was antithetical to the Bible, according to Luther's charge. This is what he says. To the Pope, that the Pope or bishop anoints, makes tonsures, ordains, consecrates, or dresses differently from the laity may make a hypocrite or an idolatrous oil-painted icon, but it in no way makes a Christian or spiritual human being. A little fire in the belly. In fact, we are all consecrated priests through baptism as, this is crazy, quotes the Bible, St. Peter says, ooh, even quoted Peter, kind of a guy, important guy in the Catholic Church, 1 Peter 2.9 says, You all are a royal priesthood and a priestly kingdom. And then Revelation 5.10 says, Through your blood, 
you have made us, us, all of us, into priests and kings. So he's starting to poke. 1520, two months later, goes on in his letter to on the Babylonian captivity of the church. So that's a nice, you know, name as well. And he says this. How then, if they are forced to admit that we are all equally priests, as many of us as are baptized, by this way we truly are, while to them is committed only the ministry, only they can be the ministry, and consented to by us, if they recognize this, they would know, listen to this language, that they have no right to exercise power over us except insofar as we have granted it to them. By our consent, you can lead. By us granting it to you, you can lead. Those are incendiary little phrases in 1520. That'll get you killed. That goes directly into the face of the divine right of kings and popes who say there are no inalienable rights for you. And Luther had the intention to organize the church this way to say it should be the members of the congregation that have the right to elect a pastor and if, and if necessary, dismiss them. Calvin put it into practice as well in his churches where the church members, this is like for the first time, elected elders or chose elders, chose leaders. It's forming the beginnings of representative leadership. It's stirring in the 1520s. And these ideals, these Protestant Reformation ideals, they make their way across the continent of Europe to England to this radical group of followers of Jesus. It gripped them, and they said, you know what? These things that Luther's saying is right, and I think the church has got some issues, and we need to purify the church and maybe even separate ourselves from the church and thus is born the puritans who are also called separatists and those ideas incubate for about a hundred years until the point where they say we've got to take this to a new continent because they just keep chasing us down and trying to kill us and we're not able to live out these god-given rights we need to have a fresh start. The Protestant Reformation. Let's just ask ourselves the next time we hear a, a public politician make this unassailable point. The Protestant Reformation planted the seeds of individual rights that the pilgrims watered on this soil to the point of the American Revolution. That's where it comes from. A couple more examples as the Puritans watered the seeds 
of the Protestant Reformation's ideas about individual rights before God. A Puritan pilgrim and pastor who came over shortly after the Mayflower. By 1633, he had taken a pastorship of a small church in what's now Cambridge, Massachusetts. His name was Thomas Hooker. And then he migrated south shortly after and founded the city of Hartford, Connecticut. And in 1638, so this is only 18 years after the pilgrims arrived and started their radical, treasonous ideas of let the people write the document, vote on it, and then make choices from time to time in elections of laws and governors. So 18 years later, Thomas preached a midweek sermon on Deuteronomy 1.13, where Moses, in that moment, had recalled how he developed a political leadership structure for the people of Israel through telling the Israelites to go and choose wise and understanding leaders from among them. It says this in Deuteronomy 1.13. Choose for your tribes. Choose. That right there. That is a... (laughs) treasonous idea in colonial America. Choose for your tribes from among you wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will anoint them, appoint them as your heads. And you answered me. The people said, the thing you have spoken is good for us to do. So to Thomas Hooker, this was a template for how nations should be governed. Right here in the Bible, this is the template. This is how God has set it up. So one listener took notes, and in shorthand, these are the notes that remain from that sermon. Here are the key points. Quote, the choice of public magistrates belongs unto the people by God's own allowance. Where does he get that idea? The Bible. The privilege of choosing or election, which belongs to the people, therefore must not be exercised according to their humors, but according to the blessed will of God. Humor is in that context like just a whimsical, you know. To the blessed will of God. They who have power to appoint officers and magistrates, it is their power also to set the bounds and limitations. How long should they be elected? If we don't like them, vote them out. The foundation of authority is laid, we got to hear this, firstly in the free consent of the people. It is 1638. Absolutely radical notion of government. That the people, it's by the free consent of the people that government should be founded. Where does it come from? Right out of the Bible. Right out of a pastor's interpretation of God's setting up government for a nation. Not coincidentally, less than one year later, in Hartford, Connecticut, they banded together with two other local sediments, and they created something that scholars call the first constitution in the United States. It was called the, the, the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut. And what, what's in there? It's a little constitution in which these three settlements got together, and they said, hey, to rule ourselves as a civil body politic, to use the Mayflower term, citizens elected representatives from each little town and, and, and location to a legislature that would enact laws of the land. That had never been done before on this continent. 
for this reason, Connecticut is called the Constitution State because it started the idea of a constitution. Well, Mayflower did, but, well, Reformation did. Well, opa, the Bible did. Oh, wait, where are we going? Here we go. But it's called the Constitution State because our founders used that template to then start a constitution. For these reasons, Thomas Hooker is sometimes called the father of democracy. But he's a pastor reading the Bible, saying, look what God did. One other one that's incredibly influential is Reverend John Wise of Massachusetts. I wish God would have given me a name like that. <laughs> that's a good last name right there. Nothing against my last name, Dad, Mom. We're good. But uh, Wise, never mind, I'm done. Okay, John Wise was preaching and writing in 1687. This is way early. I mean, this is almost still 100 years before the Declaration of Independence. So this pastor, again, is preaching in the prairies of the colonies these specific phrases, and you can go back into the history books, go back and read the actual sermons to see these phrases. Why? Oh, we'll get there in a moment. But here they are. He was preaching that, quote, the consent of the people was the foundation of the government. Where did he get that? Maybe he got it from Thomas Hooker. Maybe he got it from the Mayflower Compact. Maybe he got it from Martin Luther. Maybe he got it from the Bible. Maybe he got it from all of them. But he was preaching clearly the consent of the people is the foundation of government. And that, quote, every man must be acknowledged equal to every man. radical idea in 1678. And that, quote, taxation without representation, ever heard that phrase before, is tyranny. This language sounds familiar. It's because Thomas Jefferson did not have all original ideas. In 1772, a group of the founding fathers that had band together and called themselves the Sons of Liberty, as they felt a revolution possible, as they felt independence possible, as they felt the, the setting up of their own government a real possibility, what did they do? And these the Sons of Liberty include folks like John Hancock, Samuel Adams, Patrick Henry, Benjamin Rush, Paul Revere. So as they're getting together and they're like, we have got an opportunity to possibly do something that I don't know if anyone has ever done before, and that's create a nation by the people, for the people, we the people, certain inalienable rights. What do we do to get the American people to believe in this? Any ideas? In 1772... They reprint the sermons of Reverend Wise, two particular sermons, one from 1710, one from 1717, that contain all of this language about consent of the people, every man must be acknowledged equal, taxation without representation. They reprint those, and they send them throughout the colonies. And they can't sell enough of them. They can't get the press going quick enough to sell enough of them. 
case you didn't hear that, the founding fathers, in order to stir up support for a representative government, printed 100-year-old sermons from a Puritan pastor to put the specific language in the hearts and minds of the people. Calvin Coolidge, president of the United States, in 1926, on the 150th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, said this, quote, These thoughts in the Declaration can very largely be traced back to what John Wise was writing in 1710. He's the one that said, quote, every man must be acknowledged equal to every man. And again, quote, the end of all good government is to cultivate humanity and promote the happiness of all and the good of every man in all his rights, his life, liberty, estate, honor, and so forth. His works were reprinted in 1772 and have been declared to have been nothing less than a textbook of liberty for our revolutionary fathers. Or as historian Benjamin Franklin Morris, not Benjamin Franklin, in 1864 said, quote, some of the most glittering sentences in the immortal Declaration of Independence are almost literal quotations from the 1772 reprinted essay of John Wise. It was used as a political textbook for the great struggle for freedom. The political textbook of the Declaration of Independence of the United States of America are pastors' sermons who are quoting other pastors, who are quoting Deuteronomy, who are quoting the Mayflower Pilgrims, who are quoting Martin Luther, who are quoting the Bible. I'm proud to be an American that sees our foundation of individual rights firmly, firmly, directly correlating to, going back to what the Reformation planted, the truths, the ideas that the Reformation planted and the pilgrims watered and the founders brought it to harvest. Doesn't come from nowhere. If you go and reread the Declaration of Independence in this lens, what you see, what I saw as I reread it, the whole thing is one big declaration of our inalienable rights. The whole thing is about rights. The specific word rights in the context of them being rights from God appears nine times in the short document, but the whole thing is about here are our rights, and therefore we must declare independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that are among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, and that we're Whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. 
leading into the Constitution that would say we the people, leading into the Bill of Rights that would say Congress shall make no laws respecting an establishment of religion or, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, right after right after right. John Dickinson, one of the founders, one of the, the writers, the primary writer of the Olive Branch Petition and a signer of the Constitution, defined an unalienable right like this. It's a right, quote, which God gave to you and no inferior power has the right to take away. So this radical notion of, this radical American notion of individual rights is that our rights do not come from the government. They come from God. And the government's job is to make sure the rights that God gives us are protected. It's a radical notion of government. John Dickinson, same person, said this also about that. Human governments could not give the rights essential to happiness. We claim them from a higher source, from the king of kings and Lord of all the earth. This is one of our atheistic founding fathers. They are not annexed to us by parchments and seals. They are created in us by the decrees of providence, which establish the laws of our nature. They are born within us, exist with us, and cannot be taken away from us by any human power without taking our lives. Our rights come from God. Government's job is just to protect them. A thoroughly, radically American idea and something to truly be proud of. But what we must recognize is that Americans don't have certain unalienable rights without a bold and costly Protestant Puritan foundation. They certainly don't exist in the way we know them today. And most likely, the world doesn't know human rights without the bold and costly Protestant Puritan foundation. I want to put up the image of the Liberty Tree flag that we looked at last week which is one of the first flag flags that our nation ever flew. That right there is amazing. It was the first flag commissioned by the Navy, flown by many naval ships in the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War. One of the flags that circulated around to say this is our identity as this young nation that has now declared independence. If you didn't see it last week, it's got a long history to it. But the bottom line is this flag represented the ethos of the young nation that declared independence. That at the bottom of that declaration of independence from Britain is a declaration of dependence on God. 
it's an appeal to God to say, if our intentions are just, then be on our side. And from that, the founders, with all intentionality, were attempting to create a society in which liberty would reign. They were intending to build a tree of liberty. That tree has a foundation of dependence upon God, dependence upon the truths of God's word, as, you, as we saw clearly in the founders. This is not a deistic God. This is a clear, biblical, Judeo-Christian worldview, dependence on God, and the truths that are found in God's word that teach us what morality is. And there's this irreplaceable, ir- unbreakable connection that the founders taught clearly, which we saw last week, religion and morality, the foundation and dependence on God and his word that leads to a morality, a clear right and wrong that society will live by or die by. And that builds the tree of liberty. And today we really see the next level up as you build it. The next level up is individual rights. When you found the nation upon the principles and truths of who God is, you're dependent upon God and his word, and from that you get certain truths of right and wrong and morality and how to live in the world with one another, and that leads to then individual rights. You can see how it is building. It's not coming from nowhere. But like we said last week, if you take out the the bottom rung, dependence on God, the tree of liberty will fall. If you take out the morality that's based on the biblical worldview and dependence upon God, the tree will fall. If you try to build liberty without these foundational pieces, it will fall. That's what we're seeing in the world today. I read to you guys a a month or two ago about the UN document that is putting forth the next evolution of human rights, which is sexual rights for children. There is a document that is being highly circulated. It's called Exclaim, Young People's Guide to Sexual Rights. It's being distributed across the world, mostly developing countries, by the United Nations. You can look it up. Exclaim, Young People's Guide to Sexual Rights. This is an example of how we will lose our way, even with the same kind of language and general concept, if we don't stay tethered to what the founders put in place, which was clearly the dependence upon the Judeo-Christian God, biblical worldview that, that teaches clear right and wrong morality, if we remove those and retain other elements like individual rights, we will end up with this, quote, young people are sexual beings. They have sexual needs, desires, fantasies, and dreams. It is important for all young people around the world, and what's young people? Under 18, and there's no limit on the bottom defined. For all young people around the world to be able to explore, experience, and express their sexualities in healthy, positive, and pleasurable, and safe ways. This can only happen when young people's sexual rights are guaranteed. Some of those Sexual rights include, 
quote, removal of parental involvement or spousal consent laws that prevent young people from seeking sexual and reproductive health, quote, autonomy to make decisions about one's sexuality in line with the evolving capacity of young people and without forceful interference from parents, guardians, or other adult figures. Those are now the rights of your children. That's what happens when we remove the foundation. The rights that the founders fought for are not in any way the rights. That's not what they had in mind. So what happens when we're no longer connected to, endowed by our creator? You lose the grounding of morality shaped by the biblical worldview. You get things like this, and nobody knows where it's going to stop. So this is where, as Christians, we have a great history, a great legacy, a great inheritance that has been passed down to us to where we can have and should be having those robust and honest and bold conversations with our friends, with our family, where we can open it up with those lines of, so how far do human rights go? How far? What does it look like? Is there ever a right and wrong? Does it ever stop? Does it bother you that the United Nations is putting out documents to say your children under 18 and no bottom layer of age have sexual rights that don't involve you? Is that the rights we're looking for? Is that the definition of human freedom and liberty? We need to challenge the world with those kind of questions and know our background and know where the idea of rights came from, and that's what this message is about. Now you're equipped. You know the foundation. It didn't come from nowhere. The idea itself of these human rights, inalienable rights, is right in the foundation of our country for all these five or six different influences that took hundreds of years for the, plea, for the seeds to be planted, watered, nurtured, and come to fruition. So I encourage you to, to soak in these things, to know the incredible inheritance that we've been given so that we can defend and protect and promote the truly wonderful American ideal of individual rights. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Ask for your help, God. We ask that as first and foremost citizens of heaven, you would be renewing our mind with your heart to advance your kingdom and then with incredible wisdom, wise as serpents, innocent as doves, would you help us be citizens of this earth, of this nation, of this state and of this city and have your heart to advance your kingdom in the ways that, that you want, Lord, in the various spheres of influence that you've given us. Would you help us be bold in being the church that captures that prophetic zeal that calls a people, a nation, back to its rich and godly inheritance? And that with clarity of thought and clarity of vision can 
precisely point to things that say, if we remove the foundation, the tree of liberty will fall. We need your help, Lord. I ask that you'd be speaking to each person here, inspiring us, helping us hear your voice of how we can live out being a citizen of this earth, a citizen of the United States of America in our contexts. We make an appeal to heaven. We can't do this on our own strength. We're not wise enough or smart enough, but you are God. So we ask that you just use this as as fuel to speak to us, help us have good and robust conversations with one another, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. May you be glorified, King Jesus, and may your kingdom advance. In your name we pray. Amen. I will sing a new song. I will sing a new song.